I'm going to start today by reading several, not several, a few um, scripture passages. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 13. It says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if changed with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Down in verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well-pleasing. I want to pray real quick. Before we um, love on our persecuted brethren around the world today, today I'm going to be informing you of some things that are going on around the world, types of situations that Christians, our brothers and sisters, are in. And I hope today that it's eye-opening to us all, because it's very easy anywhere in the United States, really, in a church, to feel isolated, to feel like this is, this is our church. These are our brothers and sisters. But this is not it. These are not just our only brothers and sisters. There are millions of brothers and sisters around the world, many of which need us. They need us. They need our prayers. They need our intercession. They need our help. There are people within our own assembly who need that. We all should be praying for one another. Our community. We should be praying for our community. And today, the focus is more the world at large, where Christianity, people of God is calling people into his flock in places very unlike our own. Places we've never seen, never will see, don't understand, will never understand. People who speak... Languages we'll never know. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, God is bringing into his flock. And we, you and I, okay, you and I will be in heaven together, rejoicing before the throne of God. And we'll be doing that along with the Nigerian Christians. We'll be doing that with Somalian Christians. We'll be doing that with Indian Christians and Chinese Christians all gathered around the throne of God in one gigantic congregation singing praises to Him, being grateful for all that He has done for us. And we must not forget them while we are still alive. As the the author of Hebrews said, for we are also in the body. So let us pray and seek the Lord, seek the Spirit that He might fill us with brotherly love. And affection for each other, yes, but also for those who we're never, we're never going to meet in this life. 
so that we might pray for them in earnest, effectually and fervently, so that much might be availed in these nations, in these communities, where blood is shed every single day on account of Christ. Lord, just like I pray for, prayed for the children, Lord, we are not so different than the children that we just dismissed to class. Words accomplish little, except for when your Spirit empowers them, electrifies them, gives them effectual power to change us. Fill us, Lord God. Pray that your Spirit would unite our hearts to those others whom you are also filling. For we are one body. We must not neglect those who are being mistreated among us. Or give us wisdom that we might know to pr- how to pray and how to help these people, even though we have no contact with them. Perhaps we could find a few that we could make contact with so that we might encourage them and uplift them and help them, as many have in your body. May we, being fit jointly together in one body, operate in such a manner that we take care of each other like a body takes care of itself in love for the glory of Jesus Christ, that our light might shine before men and the world might see the body loving each other and glorify you here in heaven. That's where your throne is and we are just your footstool. May we not be so uplifted as to think that we are good and capable and able and apt without you. In Jesus' name, amen. That chapter started, let brotherly love continue. Remember the prisoners. How? As if chained with them. Imagine yourself in a cold, dark cell in North Korea. No bathroom. Rats. Dampness. Crusty bread. A small cup of water. Actually, not even that. In North Korea, you're lucky to get a small hand-sized bowl of cornmeal a day. Why? Because you prayed a prayer and somebody saw you. So you got imprisoned and put, thrown into a labor camp. Imagine yourself sitting next to that believer, being another believer. How would you remember them? How would you be with them? How would you pray for them? How would you pray together? How would you worship God together? Being the only person that other person may ever see for the rest of their life. And likewise for yourself. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Those who are mistreated. Why? Since you, yourselves, are in the body also. Now, I'm trying to be very careful today not to guilt us today. We live in a rich society comparatively to many of these nations. And there are many things that the Spirit can convict us of. And I want to be very careful not to try to be the Holy Spirit to you today. But we have many abilities. We have resources. And we are in the body also with these people who need us. Who don't have the capabilities that we have. 
There's no access like we have. So today, it's not just an informative message today. It's implorative. The Spirit of God teaching us, imploring, beseeching us. Don't forget the strangers. Don't forget the mistreated, the prisoner. Remember them in their chains as if you were in chains with them. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 now. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, there would, where would be the hearing? If the, whole, if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we think are less honorable, on those we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one, mem and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And we'll stop there. But here we see the design that God has given the church. The terms body of Christ and church are talking about one thing. Now this applies within a local church. We're all supposed to be helping each other. A person who has a resource should be benefiting somebody who has not the resource. And the same thing, the body is not just a local church. It's also like-minded churches in an area. It is also the body at large in the world. That's why we support missionaries. Why? Because the body's over there too. There are people being brought to Christ over there too. There's a missionary doing God's work over there too. That's why we support missionaries. Why? Because we're one body. We're the same, in the same spirit. Likewise, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, brought into the same unity of God. And today, again, we must see the necessity of not just using our resources to help each other, as limited as they might be, but how can we also give to those who have not somewhere else? One of the primary concerns with the persecuted church is they feel like nobody knows. They feel alone. Nobody's praying for them. 
Nobody even knows what's going on to them. They don't see them sitting in a cell. Nobody sees them. They're all alone. But today I want us to all know them. Maybe not by name, maybe not individually. We'll talk about a couple names, but we are limited. I'll be honest. Let's be honest with each other. We are limited in how we can help the world. (laughs) But we can pray for them. That's the one thing we can do every day. And in a more limited degree, we can send aid in some regards. You know, for instance, these Christmas bags that we're sending down to Texas to help People in need for the sake of Jesus Christ. This is a way that we're helping those people down there. In a very small way, those bags didn't cost a lot of money. But to that child who receives that bag, it can mean the world. It can remind them that there is hope in the world. (laughs) That somebody is thinking about them. And for some people, that's all they need. Some people around the world, they're not... When you look at... Requests from persecuted believers. Rarely do you ever find anybody asking for money. They're asking for prayers. They're asking for a means by which they can know that they're not alone. In fact, a lot of them are thankful for their persecution. And they don't even really want their persecution to stop. Because through their persecution, they've known God greater in greater ways than many others have ever known God in their entire life. But they want your prayers. So we have resources, and when we talk about resources, we're not just talking about money. We're talking about time, talking about effort, talking about our prayers, we're talking about our thoughts, our awareness, and in whatever way that we can act on their behalf to stand up for justice, to appeal for their, um, for their harm to be done away with. We can do those things. And we should be doing those things. And I'll be honest with you, I have been ignorant of all of these things for most of my life. I've not really given much thought to the persecuted church. And God is waking up my heart and binding my spirit to some of these people, even just recently. This is not something that I've been had an expertise in throughout my, many, my, my 32 years of life. So I'm with this, I'm in this with you guys. Some of you have been praying for the persecuted church for years. And God bless you for that. And for those of us who need to get on the horse, let's get on the horse together. Let's get on this train so that we can be a benefit to the body, so that we can be as though imprisoned with them. 215 million Christians live in countries where high levels of persecution is an everyday possibility. Now, 215 million Christians aren't necessarily in prison today, but they are in areas where they wake up one day and they might be sent to prison. They might be abused by their neighbors. They might be kicked out of their families. 215 million believers are in a situation like that, where that is a daily possibility, and they're aware of it every single day. Every single time they open their mouth or kneel to pray, Something could happen to them. And according to an ecumenical study, that number would be about 1 in 12 Christians worldwide. 1 in every 12 person who would claim to be a Christian 
in the entire world is in some is in an area where persecution is an everyday possibility. How many people are in here? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, okay, 13. So one of us is about to be tossed into jail. <laughs> about. One of us is about to be abused. One of us is about to be rejected by their family. Why? Because of Jesus. In one recent episode in Pakistan, a principal of a local school announced that all the Christians that are in the school need to get up and leave. They need to just go home. And he didn't give any reason, but one teacher who loved their students, even the Christian ones, she appealed that not just the Christians should go, but all the students should be dismissed. Because if only the Christians are leaving, then if there's somebody outside trying to pick off Christians, make some easy targets. And that teacher did not want these Christians to be easy targets. So she appealed to the principal that all the, all the students should be sent home so that there wouldn't be easy targets anymore. One child stayed back for 15 minutes because they were scared. This child hid in a closet for 15 minutes all while their father was waiting outside, waiting for this child to come so that they could go home and into a place of relative safety. And that father testifies that those were the longest minutes of his life because he didn't know where his child was. All he knew was that there was some sort of thing about to happen. And he was just in his head. I mean, those of us who are parents, we know, what, especially Kristen, we know what it's like to think the worst case scenario of what might be happening right now. <laughs> um, I've been there. I, I've done that. You know, if, if your child is out of view for... You know, for any period of time, you're calling their name, you're calling their name, you have no idea where they are. Oh, they must have been abducted. <laughs> you know, even here in America, we think those thoughts. Pakistan, it's a very real a possibility that that person could have just been dead somewhere. But eventually the child, after about 15 minutes, sprinted out the door into his father's arms. But reports like the things like this happen in schools quite a bit where Christians will be um, pointed out or uh, kept from different functions just because they're a Christian or their parents are Christians or situations like the one that just happened. So this, for the sake of somebody outside who might want to pick them off or abduct children just because they're associated with Christ in some way. Every single month, 215 Christians are killed. 104 Christians are abducted. 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage to a, to a Muslim man. 66 churches are attacked. 160 Christians are detained and imprisoned without trial. Every single month around the world, these things are happening. And the majority of persecution in the world occurs in countries where Islam represents the majority of the population or is the official state religion. I mean, that's just the truth of the matter. Most of the persecution going on in the world is happening in, in Muslim areas. That's not very politically correct to say, but that's what's going on. The news channels won't tell you that. They're not allowed to say stuff like that. But that's what's happening. Another Pakistani Christian named, I don't know how to pronounce this name, Asia or Asiya Abibi, was held on death row for eight years. Simply because she engaged in a conversation in the market that a person didn't like. It had something to do with Jesus. There were no really 
details given. And, uh, but she was eventually released due to political pressure placed on the nation. And while many Pakistani Christians are hopeful that her release reveals hope that one day their government might loosen their hold on religious diversity because the government did let her go. Even though it's a predominantly Muslim nation, they still let her go. But the Pakistani population is still very militantly Muslim. In fact, one of the Pakistani governors who promoted Asia's release was killed by his own bodyguard simply because he did not stand against Asia's release. And the bodyguard was, is, is still applauded to this day as a hero. But Muslims are not the only ones persecuting Christians around the world. North Korea is the number one hardest place to be a Christian in the world. India is number 11. And these are not Muslim countries. In India, it's, it comes from the deeply rooted Hindu heritage that defines Indian culture and patriotism. In India, to be something other than a Hindu is to reject your Indian heritage and to become worse than an outsider. To become a Christian, particularly, is to become a Westerner and deny oneself the rights of the national Indian. One man in India named Biswas, again, I don't know if that's the right pronunciation, he was a Christian pastor. He was beaten nearly to death by ten Hindu men. Biswas acclaimed that they would have killed him with the gun that they had pointing at him throughout his beating, if it were not that he called upon the God of Daniel, who saved Daniel from the lion's den. Immediately, he reports that immediately after he appealed to the God of Daniel, the saver, the saver of lions, <laughs> Immediately they stopped beating him and they decided that they would just find him instead of kill him. They had killed his pastor previously and they were telling him that they were going to kill him. But instead, they decided to find him instead. They find him enough money to financially devastate the family, but by God's grace, Christians from around the world actually came together and paid the man's debt. So he was freed from that. Why? Because the body of Christ gathered together and considered the plight of their brother in Christ and his family. Now, if you grabbed one of these magazines from the back, feel free to open it. Inside the magazine, there's a tear-out of a map. You can feel free to tear it out if you'd like, take a look at it. But if you open it up, it shows a picture of, part of the parts of the world that experience the most hostility towards Jesus Christ. In the, in the darker areas, the hostility is greater. In the more brownish areas, the hostility is not as, quite as great, but it is still a great hostility and a great struggle to openly live out your Christian faith. Now, this is a resource that you can have open at your home or pin it to your wall or something so that you can look at these nations and as you're praying for the bro your brothers and sisters in Christ, look, just pray for a nation every day. And these are the top 50 nations. Now, there are 195 countries in the, in the world, the last I saw anyway. <laughs> and this is just 50. Persecution happens to some degree in every single nation. But this is just the top 50. And you can see that this consumes much of the world. The highest population countries are included in these, in these top 50 greatest persecution countries. And I want, I want to mention hostility 
You know, the question is, how do people determine what nations are more hostile than other nations? Um, and the report fluctuates, and a new map is created every single year. And organizations such as the Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors USA, they will, on a yearly basis, um, take different measurements based off of how difficult it is to be a Christian in one's own family or how much pressure they have from the government, um, how much pressure there is from local society, how hard it is for Christians to meet together, um, how hard it is to just pray on, even on one's own in your own closet, and how much violence in, is enacted towards Christians when you're found out. So all these things play a part to some degree in how these, how these countries are measured. And I want to run through some notable countries so that we can have some sort of perspective of what is happening to our brothers and sisters and how we can better pray for them or help as our hearts are urged by the Holy Spirit. On pay, uh, on, in, uh, if you were to, there's a, I didn't print this off for everybody, but there's a 60-page um, magazine that I have on a PDF file that runs through every single one of the top 50 nations. And I just want to... Um, point out some of them today. North, like I had mentioned before, North Korea is the number one most intensely persecuted nation for Christians to live in. And it's been that way for the past 17 years. You know, different countries will go up and down the scale, but North Korea has been the most persecuted nation for the last 17 years straight. And you'd think that the number one would be a Muslim country because of all the, you know, the, the uh, hatred and bitterness from Muslims to Christians but it isn't. The primary driver of persecution in North Korea is actually the state, the government. For three generations, everything in the country is focused on the idolization of the Kim family, which would be the, the highest ruler in the nation. They literally teach the people that the Kim family is God, and the people believe it. In fact, back in the, I think it was the 90s, when... Um, Kim Jong-un or ill, I can't remember which one, passed away, the nation went into an uproar because everybody was wondering if this was a god, how could he die? I mean, think about that. That just seems so 3,000 years ago where people actually believed that people could be gods. But this is representative of how people in North Korea are taught. They are taught in a very isolated manner. In fact, nobody in the nation has free access to the internet. Did you know North Korea does not have internet access unless you're a government official or a foreigner? Other citizens can gain internet access only through a very rigorous application process where they figure out what you're trying to do on the internet and they give you limited access for a limited amount of time and you're watched the entire time you're on the internet. They don't want you to know what's going on in the world. Children, the way they are taught is every part of their education is around how, um, how uh, they need to obey the state without thought, without question. They are never given any assignments that encourage critical thinking or anything like that. There was one teacher, I watched, in it, I watched a, a video of this teacher who went there to teach in one of their um, universities from the states. And she talked about how they had no idea how to write an essay about anything except for the Kim, uh, instead of the, uh, outside of the Kim family. 
No idea how to write about anything. They didn't know how to write a letter to their family. They never knew how to express a feeling or express a personal thought. They just didn't know how to do it. These were high schoolers, not kindergartners. Why? Because everything is about you do what you're told and nothing else. And because of that, most of the nation is raised to, and they're told that anybody who is religious in any way, not just Christians, but especially the Christians, they are um, foreign spies trying to turn the nation to a bunch of fools through their superstitions. And if anybody sees a Christian or anybody practicing some sort of religion, they're to be reported immediately to the state so that the state could punish these spies. (laughs) So everybody does it because that's what they know. They don't question it. They just do it. This is happening in the world. And if a person is caught performing any sort of religious activity or talking about any type of religion, and they're found out, the state will immediately throw them into a labor camp. One woman named Hei Wu was one of the few people to ever be released from a labor camp. And she act in one of the even fewer to escape the country. She now resides in the United States, from what I understand. And she tells about her experiences of becoming a Christian. She first heard about Christianity when her husband was in a labor camp for being found out to be a Christian. She didn't even know her own husband was a Christian for years of being together. No idea. Because people are afraid to to tell it to anybody because anybody could report them to the state. Anybody. Most of the nation is probably going to report you to the state, even your own spouse because of how they've been taught. The way she, she and her children found out that he was a Christian was while he was in the labor camp, they went to visit him. He handed them a wrinkled slip of paper covered in his own blood saying that he was a Christian and that the, he wants them to have their sins forgiven by believing in Jesus because he died for their sins. That's all the slip of paper said. And because of that slip of paper passed through the gate Their whole family got saved. The whole family then became Christians. And as she would say, they they started praying to the God of Jesus. Shortly after that, the nation went through a great famine. When uh, the Kim ruler died in the 90s, the the nation received its food through through rations given from the government. Their food distribution was controlled. They couldn't just go to a grocery store and buy whatever they wanted. It was rationed. And when the leader died, the rations stopped. Nobody had any source of food. So there was a famine in the land. People were literally living off of grass and weeds um, for a long time. And her daughter ended up dying of starvation. Um, Not much is said about her son. Um, But at that time, she ended up fleeing to China learned a little bit more of Scripture. She was able to read a Bible briefly for a short period of time, enough to memorize the Lord's Prayer and learn a little bit more about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But then she was caught, sent back to to North Korea, put back into a labor camp where she spent years. And she kept that Lord's Prayer with her her entire time there. That's all she had. That's all the knowledge she had of the Scriptures, other than the basic knowledge of how Jesus died for her sins. And with that knowledge, she ended up converting many other people in that prison camp to Jesus Christ. And she talks about how she literally started a labor camp church. 
many of the people that were converted were, ended up being executed or otherwise abused more harshly because of their faith in Christ. Eventually she was released for some reason. She, it was never mentioned why she was released. But she talks about how the only scriptures that anybody ever read in the entire nation, even to this day, comes from slips of paper being smuggled in through being sewn into different pieces of clothing, you know, lining of coats or jackets or other sorts of, of, uh, of clothing, just sewn into the lining. And then you take the slip of paper out, you memorize it really quickly, and then you burn the paper. Because if you don't burn the paper, somebody's going to find it, and you're going to be in trouble. So you just have to memorize small pieces of Scripture at a time. Sometimes years go by before you can see another slip of Scripture. But those slips of Scripture are their constant companion, constantly throughout their years of life there. And if you're lucky enough as a North Korean to find another Christian, you may only find one or two more Christians in your lifetime who are open enough to, talk, to tell you that they're a Christian. Like I said, everybody's afraid to say anything about it. If you're lucky enough, you can't meet together officially. You have to, if you want to talk and worship Christ together, you have to do it while you're doing something inconspicuous, like going for a walk. Or if you're able to escape public eye up into the mountains, then you can pray together. Otherwise, if somebody sees you doing something suspicious, they're going to come up and arrest you. No court case, nothing. They'll just throw you into labor camp. The best opportunity, the best experience that any of those Christians report to having is just the ability to pray with somebody. Just the ability to tell somebody else the Bible verse that they know and to hear the Bible verse that the other person knows so that they can help each other and give each other this resource that they didn't have. But their favorite thing is to just pray with somebody, to pray to the God of heaven and to beseech him for his help. What do North Koreans want us to pray for? If you're taking notes, you can write some of this down because this afternoon, uh, <clears throat> we're going to, before the, before the communion service, we're going to pray for our brothers and sisters. They, they pray that they will be free to talk about Jesus with each other. They just want the opportunity to talk with their families about Jesus and their friends and each other. Pray for free evangelism in North Korea. They also want us to pray that believers will find each other, that they won't be alone, that they'll have somebody else in this with them. Pray that believers will find each other. And pray that believers will not lose hope and that they will stay devoted to Jesus. You know, you and I... Sometimes we can go long periods of time without ever having to really, with any degree of conviction, say, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. We sing it sometimes, not very often. Perhaps the quote or some sort of similar statement runs through our mind. But these people have to say this to themselves and each other every single time they can meet. They pray this every single day. I have decided to follow Jesus. There is no turning back for me. Because if they don't say this to each other, they will fall away because of the persecution, because of the hardships placed upon them. And you and I, we must see this with similar conviction.
I mean, this is something that I wish, I don't know, I have a hard time saying this, but it's almost good that these people are persecuted so that they can have such devotion to Jesus. We can be a Christian and not be very devoted because it's easy. I don't have to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. There is no turning back with any degree of conviction or necessity. Because I don't need to. It's not, it's not hard to be a Christian. But I've got to move on here. Number two and the three on the watch list are Afghanistan and Somalia. Out of, the 43, out of the 45 million combined people in these two nations, it's reported that maybe only a couple thousand Christians live in those two nations. Out of 45 million people, all those people going to hell. Save a couple thousand. And it's really hard to come to a number, number because once a person is found to be a Christian, they're immediately imprisoned or executed. Afghani Christians pray, and you can write this down if you want to pray along with it, with them, that some out of those 2,000 Christians will be bold enough to pay the ultimate price if only that some in that nation would hear the gospel. This is literally the only way the gospel can be heard in this country is if someone will deliberately stand up to die, if only that they might get a few words out per person before they're arrested and executed. That's the only way the gospel is proclaimed in this nation, is if somebody dies for the few words that get preached to an audience. So we must pray. One, we, it would be helpful to pray that there would be free evangelism also. But in the meantime, the Afghanis are praying for boldness. They're not praying for freedom. They're praying for the courage to do what's necessary for Jesus Christ to be made known in their nation. And that means the death of those who would stand up and speak. Number six on the list is an area called Eritrea, a nation called Eritrea. This one struck me strangely because on the list, you can see that half the nation is actually Christian. It's technically a Muslim nation, but um, several million Christians live in the country. But if you dig a little deeper, you'll notice that the only type of Christianity that's allowed is Eritrean Orthodox Christianity, which is actually very far from um, a gospel-centered Christian denomination. And really only 2% of the population is reported to be of any sort of Protestant evangelical denomination. And these are the Christians who are imprisoned for their faith. There's about 3,000 of these, of this 2% that is currently in, in prison because of their faith. Not because they did anything wrong, just because of their faith. And I think you may have heard the story once, but in, one, in 2010, one student, a young girl, was detained in a shipping container for two years before she died in Eritrea. Just in a hot shipping container in her own feces for two years before she ultimately died from, from being smothered in that container. Number 14 is Nigeria. And similar to Eritrea, Nigeria is also about 50% Christian. But in, in Nigeria, the north side of the country is Muslim and the south side is Christian. In the northern part of the country, Christians are treated like low-class citizens and are given the jobs that nobody else wants. And they're not allowed to gain wealth or status in society. They are often deprived of water and food simply because they're Christians. It's kind of like the bully stealing the lunch money from, from the little twerp at school. <laughs> but this is how Christians are treated. 
In this part of Nigeria, it's also the highest risk for women to be abducted, raped, and forced into marriage to a Muslim man. So these Christians need prayer for, if you want to write these down, these Christians need prayer for, particularly the women, because they're at the highest risk for persecution in Nigeria, to be mistreated in these ways. Pray for the women to be kept safe. Pray for their physical needs to be met, because they're constantly being deprived of their necessities. And pray for the Christians to not abandon their faith or their testimony due to the mistreatment they receive. Like I said, they're treated like slaves, essentially. Pray that they will not lose their faith or their testimony because of the mistreatment that they receive. Number 18 is Vietnam. The main source of persecution in Vietnam comes from the Buddhist majority. Most converts are coming from rural areas, where Buddhism takes on a more diverse form, kind of like you, know, you have more of your hometown versions of Buddhism in the rural areas, not necessarily your mainstream Buddhism. And this is where most of the converts are coming from. So that's where the state is sending more and more police to make sure that Christianity doesn't get too big. Christians are typically not seen as a threat until they become socially active on account of Christ. At that point, they can be arrested if they start proselytizing heavily or, or that you see large hordes of Christians being converted. At that point, they start becoming hostile. And their main prayer requests are the pastors are for the pastors in the rural areas to properly disciple the converts. Because in those areas, it's very common for the people to intermingle their Buddhist rituals with Christianity. So you get some sort of um, um, faux Christianity because of the intermingling of their idolatry and Buddhist, Buddhist um, theories. So pray that the, the pastors will be able to properly disciple the new converts. And pray for the Christian minority because it's actually growing in Vietnam. The Christian population has been growing consistently. And as a result, the pressure from the authorities is growing consistently. So the prayer request is that the Christians will withstand the pressure put on them from the government. And there's only a couple more that I want to read to you about. Mexico and China. Mexico, most of us are probably aware that Mexico is actually mostly Christian. Out of the 130 million Mexican citizens, 124 million claim to be Christian. Now, most of these would be Catholics. And it's unknown what type of Protestant and evangelical population there is. But most of the persecution comes from the corrupt government officials and the cartels. That, run, that literally run the country. <clears throat> Mexico is one of the most violent nations in the world because of the corrupt government and the cartels. These target Christian minorities who, with, with violent attacks, robberies, and kidnappings, um, because the Christians are the only ones who really stand up against their illegal activities. They stand in the way, so the cartels then act violently against them. Not because of their Christianity per se, but because of what the Christians stand for. So the prayer is for the Catholics to come to the true faith in Mexico. And two, for the Christians to not back down from taking a stand against injustice and sin. And the last one I want to talk to you about is China. 
China is one of the major political superpowers in the world. The persecution in China is often overlooked simply because we think of it as a pretty modern country with lots of freedoms, but we can't forget that China is one of the last remaining communist nations in the world. The government has little patience with anything that they don't feel they can control. While Christianity is not technically outlawed, Christian churches and Christian centers are closely watched and bombarded with red tape so that they don't grow, so they can't really do anything. There's also much pressure from family members to, tr- to come back to following traditional ancestral Eastern religions. And in China, one of the main requests that the people have is actually for the teenagers. Chinese Christians pray that their teenagers will not be overcome by their materialistic environment, but rather that they may, have effect- that they may be effectively discipled to gain a deep devotion for Christ. And not just be absorbed into the materialistic society. We could pray for that in our nation too. And another prayer request in China that they have is for the evangelism and missions endeavor to spread beyond cultural boundaries. And I'll explain. In, in China, there, are, there is much socio-religious diversity that makes evangelism difficult. Much of the nation would claim to be atheist. And then you have all sorts of different Eastern religions that... Play, a, play more predominant parts in, in one city versus the next city, one community versus the next community. There's many different Eastern religions that are observed in China, not to mention the atheism that China would technically claim to be an atheistic, humanistic state. They wouldn't claim any particular religion. So being able to defend the faith properly to the majority is a must. So the prayer request for them is to be able to wisely Um, defend their faith and be able to um, speak persuasively beyond cultural boundaries. Now, some of this may have seemed like a lecture, like you went to school and then you have to take these notes about these different nations, and sometimes that's good for us. But I wanted to just give you a taste of the vast amount of cultures and different religions that there are that Christians are dealing with. In America, we occasionally engage with somebody who's hostile towards Christianity. But honestly, most of the hostility comes interdenominationally between churches. Different types of Christians from different denominations. But in other nations, that's not really the problem. In other nations, mostly, Christians are Christians. There's no Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists or anything like that. You have the Orthodox Church of the nation, but the, the Christian minority, they're just they're Christians outside of the different churches that are started from missionary, Baptist missionaries or Presbyterian missionaries or Pentecostal missionaries. But around the, around the world, Christians view themselves very much just like brothers and sisters in Christ. Their pressure comes from those who are strictly against Christianity. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong necessarily with denominationalism or different breeds of church. What I am saying is their prayer requests aren't for their church services and the things that are going on within their church. Their prayer request is for the gospel to be proclaimed, for the commission to be upheld, for them to stay strong amidst the persecution, but so that they might not lose faith and that they might 
transmit their faith to other people. That's what their passion is. One pastor, um, an Iranian pastor, was detained and sent to Turkey to prison. He was recently released and he was interviewed as to whether or not he wanted to escape his country and come to the States where he could be safe. He responded by saying, I'm still talking with God about my future. It's in his hands. It is difficult to be a refugee here in Turkey, but I hear from friends in the West that life is so rushed there that believers hardly have time to pray and worship on a daily basis. I don't want that for myself either. Maybe God is teaching me something that I can use when I go back to Iran. Isn't that kind of convicting? People who are suffering, being persecuted, imprisoned, they still don't want to come here because they hear about how busy we are and how our priorities usually don't have much to do with prayer or worship. They don't want to come here because of that. Why? Because prayer and worship are dear to them. They can't live without it. They can't live without constant intermingling with God's people. They would rather be persecuted and imprisoned for their faith than to come here where they, their, the prayer and the worship just isn't vibrant. It isn't a daily necessity. So part of the reason I wanted to talk about this today is so that we could learn from them. So we could see their devotion. And we could reprioritize our own lives. To reprioritize the things that are necessary. The Bible. Prayer. Worship. The unity of the church. These are the things that they prioritize. Their services are not complicated. Their sermons are not complicated. They don't have a ton of really good speakers or bands or, or uh, events, youth groups, anything. They don't have that stuff. Not really. What they have is the scripture. They have each other. They have prayer. And they have worship. That's all they have. And that's what they love. That's what they love. First Corinthians 16, or chapter 1, verse 26 says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. And he said in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. You see that? With our many words, which are, with our much learning, our much study, our many books, we can actually make the cross of Christ of no effect because we start relying on the wisdom of man. We start relying on our understanding, on our presentation, on our forms and systems, on our laws and our bylaws, on our structures. And we make the cross of Christ worthless because we don't even care about it anymore. We just care about how things are run, how eloquently things are spoken. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to just preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. He's telling you, the wisdom of words can make the cross of Christ of no effect. And the hearers, you get that? 
And that God does not choose the mighty things. He does not choose the wise people. Again, Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you want to know God? Don't come to me for it. Don't come to another preacher for it or some other person. The power of God is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God is there. An entire family we read about in North Korea was won to Christ simply because a tiny little slip of paper said that Jesus Christ died for your sins and I want you to know him. The entire family was won because of that little slip of paper. Here it's like pulling teeth, trying to get somebody to see how good Christ is. But there, all it takes is a little slip of paper with these words that most of us would find, you know, whatever. Unimportant. Yeah, they're important, but they're not very interesting. They're not profound. How's that supposed to change a life? What am I supposed to get out of that? I already know that. Oh, it's like pulling teeth over here. I feel like that about myself too. Like, why am I not worshiping Christ because of this? I'll be reading a passage in Scripture and I'm like, I know this passage is amazing. Why am I not filled with worship because of it? And it's so discouraging. Because I know the power is there. Why? Mostly it has to do with, I'm looking to the wrong things to find God. I'm looking to my wisdom. I'm looking to some book or some wisdom given by some other guy. I'm looking to people and their forms and their ways. The focus isn't here. In the persecuted church, the focus is here. People don't even want to come here. The focus is on the scriptures, on prayer, worshiping God and thankfulness and gratefulness. We need to learn from them. We need to thank God for them and for their testimony to us. So that we can get kicked in our pants. And remember, what are the first things? What are the first things that we have left, perhaps? Hopefully we have not all left the first things. But if you're like me, you struggle with that. So what's the point of today's day of prayer for the persecuted church? Well, one, we want to pray for them. So that even though we will never see the results of our prayers today or in our lifetime, some might be comforted in their affliction, and that the gospel will continue to spread in the midst of the great suppression happening around the world. One, we want to pray for them. It's not about us necessarily. It's about them. It's about the body of Christ. Two, we want to unite our hearts to our brothers and sisters who are suffering and so fulfilling the love of Christ and proclaiming the unity of spirit until our death. We want to unite our hearts with the whole body of Christ on their behalf. That's the love of Christ. And three, so that we might learn something from the worldwide church, that we are not the culmination of all the good that church history has accomplished, that God is building his church everywhere, and that wherever Christians meet together in the name of Christ, He is there blessing them, sustaining them. And lastly, number four, we want to partake of Christ's body and blood 
in a worthy manner, not forsaking the needs of those who are around us. And we'll look at that more this, this afternoon before we partake in communion together. But we need to know the suffering that our brothers are going through and actually care enough to pray and intercede in some way. Because if we're not doing that, then we're not unified in the Spirit. We're isolate. We've isolated ourselves. And we must fight that. We must combat that. We must not live isolated. We, not, we must not be content with them feeling isolated. We must come alongside of them, even from thousands of miles away. Lord, I thank you for your people that are scattered abroad. I, just, I know that they are your sheep, and you are the good shepherd. It is difficult to pray for your sheep simply because I know that you are the great shepherd and you already know all the needs that we all have. You already know of our suffering, our misery. You already know all these things far greater than we do. Your concern for us is far greater than our concern is for one another. It almost seems silly to pray for each other as though our concern meant anything because your concern is so much, so far greater already before we even open our mouths. But Lord, we pray for them anyway, not for your sake, not to inform you, but because we want to unite ourselves to them. We want to act like the church, the body of Christ, spread abroad, dispersed throughout the nations. And Lord, we have so much to learn from them, and they can also benefit from us. And so we pray that in the afternoon service, that as we pray together, that you will intercede in our prayers and that your spirit would groan within us so that our prayers would not just be empty and lifeless, but that we might be effectual and fervent in our prayers so that perhaps somewhere in the world, somebody might benefit from what we're doing here today. In Jesus' name, amen.